Hey everybody, welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire and all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I am talking with Jamie Bissonette, the king of Beantown. What is up, dude? <laughs> Not much. King of Beantown, eh? I like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a New England native, as you know. I do very often reminisce about coming back to New England and coming home. I was actually discussing it the other day. I was like, should I move back to Rhode Island? Maybe I should move back to Rhode Island. And the first thing Tatiana said to me was, you'd be a lot closer to Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I would love it for you guys to be back here, but there's another thing you have to remember. You'll have to shovel snow. I don't mind shoveling snow. Oh. Well, you know what? I'm going to be. Oh, wait, no. You have a son who's old enough to do the shoveling now. Totally. Yeah, but he's going to be a hey, Ethan, sorry, bro. Yeah, yeah you guys should move back. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I mean, let, let's talk about big picture here. Jamie, you have, I mean, what's the number now, restaurant-wise? Do you still have? We have three. 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 Well, kind of four. We, at one point, we had Toro, New York, Toro, Dubai, Toro, Bangkok, which right before the pandemic, we reconcepted into a little donkey, Bangkok. And then we have Toro, Boston, Copa, and um, little donkey in Cambridge. And we had Toro, New York. The pandemic swallowed up a lot. So now we have little donkey in Cambridge, little donkey in Bangkok, but that restaurant hasn't been open for almost a year because of all the restrictions there. Yeah. Um, and then Copa and Toro. And we're working on a, another restaurant in Boston. So that's exciting. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, your trajectory is, is really amazing and your partnership is really unique too, right? Um, I, I, can you kind of talk about the, the, the progression that you've taken to get where you are now? Because you know, where you are right now, what you're doing, I mean, you have a James Beard Award, you've published a really brilliant cookbook, you've done things on your terms, which I think is really, really powerful. Not a lot of people have that luxury in life. And, but you did it in a very particular way. I mean, you worked really hard. That's all, I mean, that was it. That was, you know, I, I always knew that I wasn't the best and the most talented kid in the kitchen, but if I could be the hardest working one, I saw that that could be a route for success. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky. I decided to be a chef or I wanted to be a chef when I was 17. It's like, I'm going to go to culinary school at 17 years old. I gotten kicked out of high school and I went to culinary school. Like I'd say 90% of any kid, 17 years old, deciding what they're going to do for their life has like 80% wrong. You're totally fucking wrong. Right. It was just dumb luck that I actually stuck with it. And I, I mean, I, I tapped into something that uh, was just part of my DNA, I think. I love food. I love it. And yeah, I, but I came out of like the punk rock hardcore world, going to shows and putting on our own shows. And like there wasn't a Rolling Stone magazine writing about the bands that we liked. So we had our own zines that we made and photocopied at Kinko's and sold for $2 at shows that we stapled together. And 
bands that we loved didn't come to see, you know, didn't come to play like the Coliseum and or like the Hartford Civic Center or anything growing up. So we would rent out Elks Lodges or find bars that were slow or like basically throw our own shows. And like we got that like DIY kind of energy and like it, it gave us an entrepreneurial spirit to know that if, if you wanted to be a part of that punk rock and hardcore scene that you you couldn't just be a you had to be an active participant you can't be a passive participant and that's how i've really gone after being a chef being a restaurant person is being an active participant having a role keeping my hands dirty and knowing that if we want to do something you know we're not going to wait for someone to tell us we can do it we're just going to try to figure it out on our own so i think that that, that was like very lucky of me to discover it as a young kid so I heard rumors that you used to cook for bands. I mean, sometimes, yeah, yeah, I cook for bands. Um, back I was in, in bands. that time, though, like back when you were punk rock, you were cooking still. Dude, totally, man. Like a band would come in, into town. Like when I was actually, when I was in culinary school, I lived with another uh, hardcore kid and he didn't work in restaurants at all. But at the end of a show, he's like, you know, I'm getting out of work at midnight. And he, you know, is like at going back to the house, no cell phones back then. This is the nineties. And, uh, or maybe they did have them, but we certainly couldn't afford them. <laughs> right. So like I get back to the house and I'm coming, I get home from work after working a pretty long day in the kitchen and I look and there's like 20 kids hanging out in our living room and his bedroom and my bedroom. And I'm like, oh, what's going on? He's like, oh, the bands uh, didn't have anywhere to stay. So they're going to sleep on our floor tonight. They're like, he's like, uh, they're also hungry. And, and it happened to be a band that I knew. And then I had gone, like had stayed with me growing up in Connecticut at my house. And like, it was like, oh, hey guys, how you doing? It's like, hey, Carl, Chris, DJ, what's up, man? Hey, go on. Oh, yeah. So we end up, you know, cooking a big vegan feast at one o'clock in the morning of dried legumes and potatoes and stuff. It was fucking awesome. I loved it. It was great. Which is really funny because, you know, a lot of people know you and as part of the Hoof and Snout Mafia. So you saying cooking vegan food, you were for a long time, were you not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because of hardcore, I was vegetarian, vegan, then vegetarian again, then vegan again, then freegan, which is I was vegan, except for when I was poor. If somebody gave it to me for free, I would eat it. So free. <laughs> I love that one, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm vegan. I can't have it. I'm really hungry. This has butter in it. Fuck it. <laughs> I'm going to eat it anyway. It's free. It's free. It's free. <laughs> so yeah. you were like one of those guys who used to go to the show and they would have like a burger set up over there, but then they would be cooking burgers, but then you could put your condiments on over there. So you were the guy who would go make like the vegan condiment sandwich, right? With like the pickles and the lettuce and ostensibly i see where you're going with that but screw you no <laughs> yeah i did when i was broke <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i have no shame i've done that. i mean we definitely like there's a place I, I don't even know if it's in existence anymore but when you're driving down the east coast from new england down through the carolinas to go like to florida for instance on tour you start seeing these signs they used to be totally racially insensitive i'm not sure if they exist anymore but it was a place called south of the border and they had, had these advertisements for this guy, their, their mascot, their like caricature of a Mexican guy named Pedro. And it was like, you'd get excited because once you got there, they had this huge condiment area. So you could go like one person would get a burrito and then all of us would have saltines and fucking ketchup patch kits to sit like forever. 
sitting in the van with like a stack of like packets of crackers and ketchup and mustard and just eating that with somebody else. Like somebody got the burrito, usually not me, but like that was where we would go and be so excited or a really great food court, you know, in, on like the, the highway rest stop back when they would have like the pumps too, like walking around with you steal a soda cup and you'd walk over and be like, what do you do? And you're like, Oh, nothing. And you pump up like an entire pint of ketchup. You get into the, into that, you know, eating ketchup, like soup. Yeah. 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 It's good. Everybody's done it back in the day. I mean, it's funny. You, you think about all that stuff back as a kid, like getting, yeah. getting through, right. Getting through yeah. to get there, make fake it till you make it kind of a situation we always did. So I want to, I want you to talk about a little bit like you, your culinary school experience and then your first job, like professional kitchen where you started like really where that moment switched where you're like, you know what, I'm not vegan anymore and I'm cooking these cuts of meat or I have to learn to taste everything. And that must've been a big transition for you, right? Cause you're like, oh yeah, yeah, it was big. So yeah, culinary school was interesting. Um, and I started culinary school at 17. I was too young. Like, I wasn't allowed to use some of the machines because uh, state law in Florida, I wasn't allowed to use the slicer until I turned 18. So like the first six months of culinary school, <laughs> I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, I couldn't use the slicer. <laughs> um, oh my God. And I love, but I loved it. I, and I, I learned a lot and I, you know, for being, having very little experience in the restaurant world, like going to culinary school, learning the terms, learning the importance of hierarchy, understanding how to respect the history of our, of our, you know, our industry. It was huge. So I liked it for that a lot. Um, then after graduating, I was like, fuck, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave Florida soon. And I moved to Boston and I wanted to work uh, for Jasper White. And, uh, but he had closed Jasper's place earlier uh like maybe a year earlier to that and i had had a chance to come up and stage there once so i was really excited and the word on the street was he was joining a new kitchen uh, and he was taking over as the culinary director for then a small local group called legal seafoods they, just, small they had, just then small. they only had like i think five or six locations you know they had like the original in cambridge um anyway if i digress on that he ended up working there for six months and left and started up another project. I ended up there for eight months, but I worked with um, a kitchen manager who started right around the same time that I started. I think he's now their director of culinary CEO um, of the whole group. His name was Rich Volante, and he had a, like a completely amazing impact on me with, yeah, we were a volume restaurant. There was a commissary that did a lot of things, but we still did a lot of all the minute cooking. Um, and and which property was this? Because I remember. I worked at the one in the Prudential Center, the workhorse, busy one with the saute station at the window facing the mall area. God. And I worked at that saute station. And, you know, there'd be days where, you know, there was a blizzard in, on April 1st in 1997. So I got to work that morning to work a lunch shift. I ended up working a double. And I think we did like a thousand covers because of all the hotels that were attached and you couldn't, the trains were down. It was like totally unprepared. And it was, it was wild. And we, I learned, you know, he taught me, he taught me how to do a lot. And he taught me the importance of taking like really serious steps and like on slower days or at the end of the night when we were there, he would like show me how to cook dishes that he had done in other restaurants. Like, that weren't just the legal seafood way. And it really, it made me feel like, made me feel good that somebody was taking 
a second to show me stuff. Um, and then I ended up leaving Boston and going back to Connecticut where I grew up to be a townie and an idiot for a while. But I worked at some great restaurants there. And I took what Rich taught me of like, a great mentor needs to be able to be a great teacher and have that patience, which he did. Uh, and then I worked for Billy Grant in uh, the Hartford area. Um, I worked at Brico, uh, helped, helped when they were opening up grants and then moved to Boston, moved back up to Boston. But the entire time in Connecticut, when I was working, I always had two jobs. And I realized that if I could keep myself busy, I could get into less trouble. Uh, although that proved not to be the case. I got into a lot of trouble. So I had to leave Connecticut and came back to Boston. Um, but working was what was my salvation, like staying busy. And there was no internet that, you know, well, there was, but we didn't know how to use it. We didn't have an email. There wasn't a, a, you know, we couldn't watch YouTube videos or look on Instagram to see what somebody was doing in the other part of the, you know, the other part of the world with food or Facebook or anything like that, you know? So you had to travel. So I, I just would work as much as I could save up my money and then take day trips, take a bus to Chicago and go to restaurants. And a lot of back then I couldn't afford to eat at Trotter's, but I would go up and be like, Hey, I'm here. My dad's coming in and he wanted me to see if I could get a copy of the menu. And they'd finally give me a copy of the menu because I'm not going to eat there. And like, that was it. I just had to stay curious and uh, keep busy. Um, it's funny you say that because that whole I had this conversation with somebody the other day, like notebooks. I know you're the same as me. You have squirreled away every notebook from every restaurant and every place. Like every single one. Yeah. That top, see that top yeah. corner right there. And the one below it has got all the extras. Those are just like, that's all little notebooks packed. And then I've got a whole bunch in Ziploc bags that are older. Cause I'm afraid it's they're going to in Ziploc bags too. I'm like, and I date, I was smart. I started dating them and writing like different things in there. And I'm like, Oh, wow. Like, oh, okay. Very cool. Like there's like a little bit of a, I don't know, like a, like an arc, like an archive kind of. Yeah. Thing. And then all the menus from where you traveled or you were able to score, like getting a menu was key. Cause that was our way of finding stuff, right? Like somebody would go to Europe and come back and they were like, Hey, did you hear so-and-so went to so-and-so restaurant? Oh, can you get me a photocopy of that menu? And then you'd get like a photocopy of a photocopy of some menu from somewhere in Europe. And you'd be like, shit, I don't know how to read this. And then you'd have to get a French translation book. Exactly. Like, yeah, you've got your French dictionary and you're looking everything up. And then you're like trying to go through like a Michel Girard book in French, trying to figure out what the ingredient is. Totally. Oh, and like now you look at it on Facebook or Instagram and then you click on the ingredient and hit a hyperlink and it pops up and tells you where you can buy it on Amazon. Exactly. I mean, it was so hard back then. And I think that yeah. there's something to be said for that. And I think, I think a lot of being, and I like to call it isolated. Right. Um, and I said this the other day to somebody and they kind of laughed at me. Um, and I attribute it. I attribute a lot of things to skateboarding, right? Because it's just my my childhood. But like, perfect example, Rodney Mullen was secluded from everybody else, which taught him how to do tricks that didn't even make sense to anybody else anywhere else. And I think it's the same thing when you're on your own in your own world. It makes you think. It makes you be creative because you don't have anybody else to rely on. Right. You're not like, oh, that's right. cool. I'm gonna do that. You're like think, what can I do? Like, I got to look, I got to taste things, or you would go to a restaurant and eat, or 
Like those were powerful times. I mean, that's where I learned that when I was in a new city, if I was on tour with a band in high school, or if it was when I was cooking and I was just traveling to go see a new city, I'd walk into every bodega, every corner store, and you'd look and like find an ingredient that you didn't know what it was. And, you know, all of a sudden you're in a part of Chicago and there's like an Ethiopian population and you look over and they've got this spice blend that you've never seen, you know, and you can't, I couldn't read it. So I bought it and I like smelling it and tasting it. And I don't know what's, what it's called. So I asked the guy at the register and he's like, it's a beverly. And I'm like, okay, I don't know how to spell it. I have, and there was no way to look it up. There was no Google. It was like, and it was awesome. You know, you're tasting this spice, burning your tongue going, is that, is that cardamom? Is that, is that allspice? What is that? And like, it was awesome. I mean, it, it really made me a very tactile cook. And it, you learned to, yeah, like you said, man, like to innovate. You have an ingredient and that you've never used before. And in a vacuum, nobody's around to tell you what it's supposed to be used for. You start yeah. using it and you're <laughs> exactly. like, cool. Then somebody walks over and they're like, why? Well, you, that's not what you're supposed to do. And, you know, nowadays, if you do it, they'd be like, oh, you know, that's fusion. It's like, no, it's experimentation, man. Just that's really interesting. I keep going on this fusion conversation with people, and um, you know, I had a really great conversation with Manit Chohan the other day, and she she was talking about how Indian food is so distinctly different from different regions, mm. and she talked about how one particular area is influenced by the Portuguese. Right? Mm. You have an, all these different areas. That is a version, that's like the original version of what I consider fusion food, right? Because somebody traveled by boat to a place, they got there, on that ship may have been, and I can't say boat, you know, people get upset because boat is small, ship is big. Don't, don't piss off the fishing guys. Um, is, that, get there. You, is that real? Is that, is that real? Yeah, for real. Somebody get mad about that? Oh my God, they always do. They always do. Boats. Boats Boats are something you get on for recreation. Ships are for fishing, big, big size. It's just a differentiation. So then this ruins something that I've been quoting from one of my favorite movies of all time from a kid. It's not proper for me to say, you're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah, I don't know. But the other one is sailing around the world from port to port. No, that's a different one. Sorry. (laughs) But... Think about that, like the ship lands on there, they have some of their spices, maybe some dried cod, whatever it be. And one of those sailors falls in love with somebody locally and they stay. They don't get back on the ship and leave, but they bring with them their taste memories from their grandmother and their mom and some of the spices and they get to take some of the stuff off that ship and keep it there. Then that influences that cuisine. That is fusion. That is a fusion of culture, not and it's amazing yeah and it's amazing like that's how paella was invented that's how pizza came about like i mean and i think that there's that disconnect and the word fusion has become used as such a mean derogatory way of describing food and unfortunately it's always always attached to asian cuisine asian fusion asian fusion. i hear that a lot yeah yeah i find that really disrespectful because if you look at culturally all over, like Hawaiian food had an influence from the Portuguese, right? Yeah. The Moors influenced Spain and they influenced Italy, right? So like people got on ships and they traveled. So 
food traveled all over the place, right? Yeah. For Columbus, he created fusion food. And syphilis. That, yeah. Food. No, he just propagated that. Yeah, yeah, he traveled that around. But then Marco Polo, again, another person who brought with him spices. Cho- I mean, so we forget how much culture and travel changes food all over the world. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people do forget that. And I, and I know you've never forgot that. And I know that I've never forgot that because you and I've traveled together. And like that thirst for education and for newness, like like you're like me. You're, when we get to a new city, you're like a kid in a candy store. You want to you <laughs> want to go try. To it's like, oh, I've never been here before. Let's go find somewhere that has a dumpling that I don't know how to pronounce. And like, you know, I'm like, OK, Pilmini. You know, the first time I had Pilmini was you know, very much that kind of situation. It was like, oh, I don't know what these are. I don't, I've never had Russian dumplings. Fucking blew my mind. Loved it, you know, and like. But isn't that amazing that every, there's so many versions of dumplings, raviolis, whether for every culture, right? Everything mm-hmm. has something wrapped in a little dough or mm-hmm. everything has something wrapped in maybe a tortilla or maybe it's a, a, a flatbread, a lavash or there's, it's everywhere. Everybody likes the stuff shit. Yeah, everybody yeah. likes to put shit inside of things. You know, it's yeah. like fill it up, either fry it or steam it or bake it or do whatever. Like boil it. Let's. So it was a way put it to in a toaster oven, call it a hot pocket, whatever, man. Oh, <laughs> true, right? Yeah, it's still good. Yeah, pizza pockets, hot pockets, lunchables, whatever. You got all those different funky things. Yeah. So, like, sorry, I, we totally digressed, but I mean, it's like that's. That's what I think is fun about what we do. Like, I, the most fun I've had cooking has been you and I goofing off. We've had a lot of fun doing that. Yeah, no real rules, you know. We gotta do. No, you, you, you taught me something. Like, respect what you're doing and take it seriously, but you don't have to take yourself too seriously when you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not. I mean, for crying out loud, we're not curing cancer. <laughs> we're making dinner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> If yeah. I could cure cancer, I would. But I mean, you know, I just want to make people smile. I want to give taste memories. I want to have people have fun. And then punish them with so much food that they throw up in your bathroom. No, that's not true. That was on not me. <laughs> okay. All right. That was somebody else that was serving me wild hair with buckshot with stinging nettle cavatelli. <laughs> yeah. you, you house that like it was nobody's business. So don't even point. It is awesome. I housed it, but that I didn't keep it. I only rented it. You had like I was getting on a red eye an hour later, and I can tell you that none of that meal made it back to the East Coast. Oh my God, that makes me feel awful now. <laughs> oh man, I was so full. It was such a. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so, folks who are listening to this have no idea how far <laughs> Jamie and I go with all the, the delinquent shenanigans we have oh, and yeah. events, whether it's riding around inflatable unicorns at an event in, in the park in New York. Brooklyn, that was the first Guga Mooga. Yeah, with Louie. Remember, we put them on and we're running around like idiots. Yep. Oh, my God. We've, we've definitely had our fair oh, share. Yeah. I actually totally forgot about that. We're like ice, two ice cream cones. Ice one cream cones, yeah, unicorn ice cream. With unicorn inflatables running around like children. I, I, oh my God, that was. Well, we had plenty of free time considering we sold out of a thousand portions of food in 45 minutes. Oh my God, I don't think I, 
I don't think I'd hustled out food that fast yeah. ever. Yeah, I, it was it was fun. It was amazing. That was one of those like, okay, now let's go to the rock show part of it. And then, yeah. so, and then they had the whole cow. Remember they had the whole cow they were cooking Lavaca and Tara on that giant roaster? Holy shit, I forgot about that. Yeah, I remember, I just remember trying to go see like uh, Fitz and the Tantrums were playing. So as soon as like we were done with food, I just wanted to go over there and hang out with those guys. <laughs> Go and see Noel and yeah. Well, I didn't know her yet, but yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. It, so, you know, you're back in Boston. Now, what happens? So, like, you've you've moved back from from Connecticut back to Boston. Where, where are you now? Well, What's going on? When I was leaving Connecticut, Billy Grant said something to me, and it was it was meant. I don't know what how 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 to take it, and I've actually thought about it over the years a lot. But what Billy said was. Jamie, you've hit a level here. You're not going to get any better between what you do in your private life and how much of an idiot you are going out with your, your friends you grew up with and fighting and drinking and causing trouble in downtown Hartford. And the fact that you're, you've worked with me, you need to go to a different city. You need to get away from your friends and you need to commit yourself to cooking. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe that's a good idea. <laughs> um, so I was like, I'm going to go back to Boston. My uncle lived up here. Um, he was really good friends with a guy named Ken. Um, and Ken had just won the James Beard Award like a year and a half previous to that. Uh, Ken's girlfriend at the time was my aunt's college roommate. Ken's college roommate was my neighbor growing up in Connecticut. So I've heard the guy's name forever, but didn't really know how awesome he was. So I, I came to Boston and staged at, at Clio to work for Ken Oranger and uh, ended up not working there. Um, <laughs> just a many a myriad of reasons, but I was really, really in a financial rut and uh, decided to take a different job that could, I could make a little bit more money at. And I ended up taking that job uh, as a sous chef at a restaurant. And then I took a job as the pastry cook five days a week at another restaurant and I worked two jobs and networked and just went out to meet people and eat and explored Boston and threw myself at it. And um, I just realized that I love this city. I mean, I've been coming up to Boston for hardcore shows since forever, you know, like since the days of the rat Skeller and the channel and, you know, I loved it here and then I just stayed. I mean, Boston's such a such a unique city. I mean, for me growing up in Rhode Island, like if somebody says you're going to the city, we weren't going to New York, we were going to Boston. That was yeah, it. Yeah. It was like Boston was is it. Like it's a really amazing, like I grew up with the big dig. Like, I mean, all that, like coming up to Boston, here we go. You know, I saw I didn't even make it inside to see the baseball game. I don't think I just had a sausage and peppers outside and Never got to go in to see a game. Oh, so, wow. <clears throat> yeah, I never saw a game as a kid. So after that, you know, how how did this connectivity come back to Ken? Because we never it, lost touch. You know, in that time, let's just talk. Cleo was like top of the game, right? And at that time, there were people coming out of Cleo that have gone on to do just incredible Absolutely. things. I mean, that churned out brilliant brilliant talent right and yeah. he, kenny was so far ahead because kenny had been to abui 
Kenny had traveled all over the world. He'd been seeing and like cooking with Jean-Louis and doing all these different things at all these different, I mean, I used to like from afar be like, oh shit, what's Kenny doing now? I remember working in San Francisco when Kenny was the chef at Silk's. Wow. That's yeah. where, when I was working at Rubicon, we would send cooks for left-handed spatulas and oven stretchers and cans of steam. And it would start by sending them to Aqua, then they'd go to Vertigo and then they'd walk over to Silk's and then Kenny would send them back with like some weird coat hanger shit. Like, <laughs> we're so evil. It's so great. And you, did you know that at the time, the daytime sous chef was Ming at Silk's? No way. Yeah, that's how that Ken and Ming worked together at Silks. I did not know that. Wild. Wow. I mean, it's just like, it's so crazy how the world just kind of circles back, right? Yeah. So when did you officially start working with Ken? So even though I was working at other restaurants and eventually uh, became the, the sous chef of a restaurant called Pigal for Mark or Fally, um, I would still go to Clio a lot. Sometimes I'd go and I would just stage for a couple of days. I'd work. Um, and Ken and I became remained friends. Like I'd see him at events. I'd see him at the bars. And one of the things was, you know, again, no social media, no, no cell phones. We would see each other at a bar and I wouldn't have anybody else to talk to. You know, it was like, I remember vividly leaving work one night after somebody told me that Bernard Loiseau had just killed himself that day. And I was like, just tortured by that. Yeah, never, right? You know, and uh, that was 2002. And I went, you know, went to this place, Silvertone that night. My uncle was bartending, went to say hi to him, saw Ken, and we started talking. And I was like, hey, did you hear? And he was like, yeah. And then we started talking about the rivalry with Michel Girard and Monsieur Cooking. And like, it affected me to the point where I went back to work the next day and I'm sort of working on a new dish. And then I see Ken and I'm like, Hey, you know, I don't work with you and I'm excited to see you. And we would talk about obscure French cookbooks and, and like dishes and our passion for food. And um, eventually one day he called me and said, Hey, I'm doing another restaurant. It's going to be a steakhouse in a hotel. I had just been running Eastern standard. I opened up Eastern standard and was there for just under two years and I was ready to leave, but I didn't have any idea what I would do. And uh, he called me and was like, Hey, we want, why don't we like finally do some shit together? And we did, we opened up KO prime. And then the rest, as they say is history. I mean, I remember when KO prime opened because I was actually working with the Kimpton group at that time. That's right. You were, I was working with the Kimpton group at that time, helping, uh, I had just come back from racing my bike for two years and uh, they, I was helping out and they were telling me about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that, that was a really invaluable experience. Like the Kimpton group really uh, introduced me to a lot of like the organizational parts of being a chef. And, you know, I, I had opened up a restaurant as the executive chef Eastern standard without having had that exposure and fuck, it's a miracle I didn't run that restaurant in the ground. Like our food cost was a struggle. Our labor cost was fucking abysmal, you know, for the first year. And as we got it like, you know, under wraps, I realized that I really didn't know what the fuck I was doing as far as running a restaurant. I was the classic, I knew how to cook. I knew how to create. I knew how to run a line. I knew how to expedite. I knew how, I knew how to do the things that a cook needs to do. Like I was a great cook. 
I was a terrible chef. I didn't understand the importance of building all the relationships. I didn't understand the importance of, of how to manage my own internal pressures. I didn't understand the importance of organization in, in regards to like food cost, labor cost, PARs, and joining, you know, KO Prime, being part of a Kimpton restaurant group. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, <clears throat> I think what you're, what you're talking about right now is like right on because those skill sets weren't taught to any of us as young cooks or as young culinarians. I mean, a lot of that stuff wasn't even part of the real, even though, and I will say this, I graduated from a food service management class, but that really still wasn't part of it. Mm. There was, there was not like, all right, here's P&L meeting. Let's go. And you're like, what? What's yeah. the, I, and, and the response normally is, I don't have time. I've got all this shit to do. No doesn't matter how much shit you have to do delegate it you get in here and see where your numbers are and where you're screwing up and And i think that that was precisely it man i needed that i needed that kick in the ass because without it man i would have i would have really i would have been really fucking a typical arrogant asshole chef who tried to run my restaurants with ego rather than empathy and understanding and you know, the humility of realizing that you don't know the most important part about being a chef restaurant owner when you're a chef is it's, it's wild, you know, like being a great cook, isn't the most important part. You know, you're responsible for all of your employees jobs, like your decisions affect a whole group of people and their lives. Like, and that's why now people are like, Oh, what, what, you know, what, what do you define success as, as a, as a restaurant tour? It's not about my food. It's not about my sous chef's food or our chef de cuisine's food. It's about like knowing that we've got people who've worked with us for 15 years that are, you know, learned another language or raised kids in the restaurant being there. And like one of our cooks comes in and he's like, hey, uh, uh, my son's looking for a job. Can he come work here? It's like, yeah, that to me is success. You trust me enough as your boss that you want me to be your son's boss. Like that is that's success. And that's the shit that you learn how to do. Those are the soft skills that you learn, not from being a cook that you learn from being humbled by the fact that you don't know what the fuck you're doing. It's, it's that moment when you can put your ego aside and remember that it's about the customer and your team. Yeah. And also, also understanding that sometimes the customer isn't always right. And the moment they're out of line and it affects your team, then team comes first. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a hard, that's a hard thing to, to do for a lot of people, because I think it's, it, everybody's trying to make their mark and become something or be who they want to be. And I mean, shit, I'm, I'm as guilty as that as anybody else. Um, you know, we all wanted to make our mark. We all wanted to leave a stamp, you know, but you know, it, that comes at a cost. And, and until that moment that you recognize that, then, then you really can make, a bigger change. True. You know, so from K K O prime then came Toro. So Ken had opened up Toro uh, right before K O prime opened and it was my favorite restaurant to go to. Um, and I was getting, you know, getting sick of being in a hotel K O prime union hotel. Um, 
I can see pros and cons for unionized workforces all over the country, all over the world. Um, but for me and where my mind was at, at, at 30 years old, being uh, the chef and dealing with uh, some of the union personalities was hard for me and I didn't rise to the occasion. Um, it actually made me, a, it made me not like myself with how I was reacting. It made, it made it really difficult for me to like feel good about, about work. And so I told Ken that I couldn't do it anymore. I needed to leave. Um, and without batting an eye, he said, how about I make you a partner at Toro? You take over that restaurant and we can start opening up restaurants together. And that's what we did. It was like, you know, it was one of those things where he suggested it and I was like, what? That's just such a bad idea. It sounds good. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Well, I remember when that, I remember that and that hit the news wire. I remember yeah. the day when that hit the news wire and it was like two talented chefs partnering together to grow. And that was, a, it was really unheard of, right? There wasn't a lot of that going on. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think, you guys set a standard, you know, and you still are continuously pushing that envelope forward and you're having fun doing it and you're still friends. That's pretty fucking amazing. <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> that's not easy. I mean, business can be hard, right? Let's be honest, you know. Especially, I mean, we, up until the pandemic, I used to joke that Ken and I have never had a fight that lasted more than 45 minutes. We've never really not seen eye to eye. The pandemic, you know, created a lot of a lot more stresses and, and whatnot and exposed a lot more of uh, my personality that I'm not proud of. And, uh, you know, it definitely had affected our, our friendship and our, our working relationship. But we're coming we've come out of that and things are getting better. And, you know, it's taken a lot. You know, I think that you have said some things in the past that really made me feel more confident admitting to myself and then out loud that our industry is, is taxing. Um, and if you already have some sort of trauma in your life, or you already have a hard headspace that you live in and you fight with your, your inner self, it's a great place to hide from that, but it's a terrible place because you don't heal and you don't learn how to live with yourself because you just forget. And, you know, the pandemic with how much we had to slow down, it gave me more, more time to like be in my own head and it confront a lot of those demons. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was hard. This industry is, it can take a lot out of you and it could also give a lot back to you, uh, you know, all in the same breath, but you've got to be able to weather that kind of like tumultuous kind of storm and, you know, and, I mean, you gave, I feel like you gave me the permission to deal with that. So thanks, bro. I appreciate it. I, what? I, I, okay. Thank you. Yeah. That's I, I don't know that. how I did it, but I'm glad it worked. I mean, for me, yeah. I get it. Like, I, I think you, you said it really well is that when you have the internal struggle, you being in a restaurant, there's always something to do. There's always something that needs to be taken care of. There's always a guest. There's always a problem. There's always a thing. And you're constantly focusing on everything else, but what needs to be focused on at the moment. So you hide behind it. And that's yeah, 100%. And like, 
you know, I, I joke, but I say like, sometimes young, my young cooks would be like, how did you get to where you were at such a young age? Cause you know, I'm only 44 now I'll be 45 this summer. And, you know, I'd like to say, yeah, I did get a lot of, uh, to get to a lot of really great opportunities younger, but it was because I couldn't confront anything else in my life. I was, everything else was just secondary health relationships, family, friendships. It was all secondary, you know, and you get some downtime like this pandemic to like reflect back on it. And like, wow, was it worth it? You know, you know, you, it's hard. It's hard to say. It's hard to say, but I'm happy. Yeah. I'm also one of those guys that like looks at like, am I happy today? Yes, I am. I've got great friends. I've got the most fucking amazing wife ever. Song is like a godsend. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the things that I've gone through to get here. So, you know, you gotta, now it's for me, it's like, oh, how do I, how do I learn to like live with the fact that maybe I made some bad decisions uh, as a cook, you know, at, at a younger age, like with my priority, my priorities, not prioritizing myself, my health, my mental health, you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah. I think that's a lot of that is what we knew. And a lot of that, is what we were taught we were supposed to do because being able to say hey i go to crazy school or i need to take crazy pills or you know i'm uncomfortable in my own skin wasn't cool it wasn't okay to talk about you had to be this strong you had to be able to barrel through it if you got cut duct tape it up super glue it keep going you got burned keep moving was about getting it done and it was about being a tough guy. It, it truly was at that point in my mind, I think it was like the last, the last frontier for the land of misfit toys. Like it was literally a fucking pirate ship. And if you showed any sign of weakness, you were thrown off the plank. Oh yeah. And, and I think as time has progressed, we've recognized that that's fucked up. And did we learn from it? I think we all have. And have we changed? We all have. Um, you and I have at least, you know, and, um, and how we move forward now is the most important thing, right? Like it's, you know, make corrections, make it better for the team, make it better for the staff, you know, and, and, and also take time to stop and look at ourselves in the mirror and go, am I doing the right thing for everybody? including myself for a change dude when we when we're in those moments where the staff is like overworked we're short-staffed everybody's feeling like they're working too much you know the the proverbial i just worked a hundred hour work week you know conversations are happening everywhere i always say to my, my team and say all right well we, we need to figure it out we need to like you need to take an extra day off we need to like no no i got it let's give it off to the other people let's give a cook a day off i'll work harder and i'll say well you know, one thing that you learn like from flying is if the cabin pressure blows and the masks come down, you secure your own first. Then you help the children and people around you. Because if you can't breathe, how can you help somebody else breathe? If you're not safe, how can you provide safety? And if you're not sane, how can you provide sanity? If you're not stable, how can you provide stability? And uh, that was not something that we were ever showed in, our, in this industry back, no. back when we started cooking. And it's hard now because I don't want to perpetuate that same cycle, right? Like, I don't want to be the boss that I had. 
I want to provide the, the good things from the bosses that I've had, but I don't want to provide that same structure. And the young cooks nowadays have changed. They don't want the same. People don't want to work, you know, two jobs in 120 hours a week just to learn and nor should they have to. But just like being an athlete, just like being a musician, like the quickest, the best way to get to Carnegie Hall isn't the quickest, but it involves practice, right? And to be the best chef and to be where you want, it takes drive. And you need to figure out how to find the balance, but still find the drive to get you there. It's true. And I think there's a lot of that that, that comes with, it becomes muscle memory once you have that drive and you're doing it over and over again. And, yeah. you know, do you have to work the 100, 100 hours a week? No, you don't. Do people still choose to? Some. Yeah. But it's, it's not always a direct path. You know, sometimes it, uh, it, it backfires and makes you resent the industry that you thought that you wanted to be a part of. Taking a couple of days off sometimes and like reflecting on, on your job and going back to it can be like revitalize you so much. And like realizing that for me, was, you know, two days off in a row was like not going to happen. You know, it was like, oh, you got two days off this week. You, know, you got Monday and the following Sunday off. And then the next following week you had Friday off. That was it. You know, it was like, oh, get, you know, muscle up, you know, buck up. You're going to, you'll, you'll get through it. Now I, I can see that my cooks in our teams, our managers, like after two days off in a row, they're better. They come back with better ideas, more energy, more drive. Yeah. It's like, when I said this to, the, to somebody the other day. It's like, you know, when you're in a place for so long, you, it be, you just become numb to it. When you step away from it and then you come back, then you see maybe you catch the mistake or you see a way to improve because you're looking at it again with fresh eyes instead of just being swallowed up by it. I'm going to blow your mind with an analogy right now. You ready? Yep. If you're sitting in the bathroom twumping and you drop like the most fucking epic deuce, you're in there. To you, it doesn't smell. You're fucking, you're sitting in the shit. I know exactly where you're going with this. As soon as you leave the bathroom and then you're like, fuck, did I flush? And you go back to make sure that you're not going to get killed by your wife because you left the fucking floater. And you walk back into that bathroom. You're like, whoa, that fucking reeks. That is a fucking terrible smell. Right. But you didn't smell it when you were in there. Yep. Sometimes you got to step away from the shit to see how bad it smells. Yep. Yep. You know, Jamie. And for folks out there who don't know what twumping is, that's tweeting while you're on the toilet. <laughs> oh, man. Tatiana used to get so mad. <laughs> <laughs> so if you ever look back at some of uh, some some posts. 2016 tweets. Going back in the is also the one who started a uh, Instagram account called Cosentino's Dimple. No, 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 no. You were awful, Chris. When you won MasterChef, top, it was Top Chef Masters, I started awful dimples right. and started harassing you. And it took you all of about an hour to realize it was me. <laughs> that was so funny. I was like, cut this shit out. <laughs> Direct text. Hey, man. Is that you? Fucking cut it out. <laughs> Couldn't stop laughing. Oh, my God. 
The only other person was Alana Alperstein. She's the only other person who knew I was doing it because I told her and she was like, Baltz is going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, that's, I think one of the best parts about this business for me has been the friendships and the fun that we've been able to have. And, And it allows us to connect with people all over the world and make these long term friendships and relationships that are really, really powerful because we understand what it's like to be in each other's shoes. We understand what it's like to be swamped or we're sharing an ingredient or we're sharing what's going on. And we're constantly, and I mean, that to me has been the best part about this business. Totally. No, that, that, and we get to eat really expensive food for free. <laughs> like, Oh, what are you doing? Eating caviar in the corner. <laughs> Jimmy, what do you, what, what's that? Uh, Perseves. Oh, man. <laughs> what are you eating? Where'd you get those? Oh, they were just, remember you had those barnacles one day? You took a picture and sent me those giant big barnacles? Yeah. yeah. I'd never seen, I was like, what the hell is that? You were like, they just came in from Spain. I'm eating them. <laughs> like, I've never even seen that before. Oh, man. Like, walking through Chris Shepard's kitchen eating all of the mise en place the first day we got there. Like, oh, this will be fun. I think he's going to, I thought he was going to kill us that day. We ate all the mise en place. Oh my God. That actually I, thought he was, I thought he was going to kill us because we were horsing around so much during the dinner that the guests started to be like, are they going to actually cook anything? Oh, we crushed the food. There was like no food was great. Food, food, was great. food was great. The food yeah. came out fast. Yeah. So now, you know, you're at Toro, then came Copa. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the property that Copa sits on had always been a restaurant. It was a Lebanese restaurant and then it was something else. And then it was the dish. And when it was the dish, it was known for having a wood burning pizza oven, this really beautiful, big marble bar and a dope patio. When the woman who owned the dish decided that she wanted to like move to the burbs and not work anymore, um, she wanted to sell it. And the landlord is an, also a restaurant person. Uh, reached out to Ken and I and was like, hey, this is going to be available. So we went, we looked at it and Ken was like, what do you think? And I said to him, I go, all right, I think it should be Italian. I think we should call it Copa. I think we're going to do wood burning pizzas, handmade pizza, handmade pastas. I think we should do all house made charcuterie with a big purple slicer behind the bar. And uh, yeah, I think we'll call it Copa or something like that. He was like, what? I was like, yeah, I I know what we're going to do. And then, you know, of course, Ken had infinitely more like also brilliant ideas. And that's what we did. We opened up Copa and it was like, it was the most fun. It, that restaurant, it, it just, it's such a special place. Like we, yeah, we just really got to put our heart on our sleeves and, and just cook with reckless abandon. I mean, the food there is delicious. And that's the thing, like I've been, I've eaten at every one of these restaurants. They're all amazing and they're all unique and they're always fun. You know, we've cooked together in, Two, I have not cooked a little donkey. I've played in the kitchen at Toro, both New York and Boston, and I've cooked in Copa with you and had fun. Not dinners, but just us goofing around in the kitchen. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but like I during think, the blizzard bash. Oh my God, the blizzard bash. My kidney just flinched, my liver just quivered. <laughs> All I remember is being like just marching through the entire city of Boston in a blizzard and us getting trapped and having to stay at the hotel above Eastern Standard. 
All I remember is the fact that Baz had shit on his breath after eating those unclean fried pork intestines at that restaurant. And you could smell the fecal matter on his, out of his mouth before he vomited. That's going to be my biggest memory of the day. I'll never forget that day of him, like, literally getting sick in the restaurant. It we, were with Seth, we were with uh, Matt Jennings, and it was Baz. And Angela, Rainer, Seth. Angela and Seth Rayner, um, and just us, and that was it. Yeah. And we had been marching around in the snow. All I remember is marching around in the snow for hours, and all of us trying to figure out how or what's happening. Oh man, couldn't even get back to your hotel. Had to get your own hotel room. Oh god, it was crazy. Yeah. That was crazy. That was wicked fun. I also remember all of us getting kicked out of the kitchen in the morning of Eastern Standard because we all volunteered to help in the kitchen to cook breakfast for all the guests. And I can't remember who was in the kitchen at that time. Oh, it was Jeremy. And we were all hung over and we were like, we'll help you cook breakfast. He's like, get the hell out of here. You guys are a hot mess. I don't want any of you in here. He was smart to do that. Yes, because then we all marched back all the way back to the hotel. Yeah. Like waist deep snow. That was such a storm. Oh my God. So I mean, it was a blizzard. <laughs> It was the blizzard, man. What? Yeah. Of course, it was attached to poor Barbara Lynch had the blizzard bash. She named it, and then it just backfired. Self-fulfilling prophecy, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about your cookbook. I mean, mm. it's still available. It's rad. I remember when you wrote it, I was just like totally stoked. It's such a great mix of so many different things. Like, Thanks, man. you talk about how that process came to be, and 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 Ken, Kenny Goodman. That's how it came to be. Ken Goodman called me and he's like, Hey, I'm working with this guy, William. He's got a, he's published a bunch of cookbooks with Andy husbands and et cetera, et cetera. And he wants to do like a at home charcuterie book with not typical charcuterie recipes, something a little bit like different. And um, we we're talking to a chef and, but I think you do a good job and you should do it. And I said, I don't want it. And he said, well, come on, you should do it. And then I was like, all right, I'll talk to him. And we talked and I was like, okay, this could be kind of fun. And, then they said, all right, this is the deal. You've got to give us the manuscript in like know, a year. Um, a little over a year later, they were pissed that I hadn't given it to them yet. And six months later, they were like, where the fuck's the manuscript? Then like a couple months later, they were like, hey, seriously. Where's the Can we have it now? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to name the book. I want my $2 and just have a, a picture of, of William like going down like a ski mountain on his BMX bike, you know? But... <laughs> Finally, like I got my shit together and uh, we, op- we, yeah, we, we wrote open. Ah, there it is. Yeah. 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 Let me it see if you put anything inappropriate in here before. I open it up. No, there's no dirty pictures. Uh, I don't think I put anything in there. No, no, you didn't. This see sign to. Oh, is it? Nice is it things in this one. Nice. Uh, that was, that was before we got to the super crazy. I mean, yeah. And look, Jamie has very short hair in that picture right there. Dude, I've had a shaved head my entire life. I grew my hair out for my wedding, which was March 8th of 2020. And my hair was like, you know, kind of like yours. Nice. A little bit nicer than yours, I have to say. No offense. And then the pandemic hit <laughs> and I haven't gotten a hair. I mean, I've gotten it trimmed a couple of times, but grew my hair out for the first time. Um, I kind of like it. I think I can pull it off. Yeah. So let, let's talk about something that's really, really, I think a really, really important. Um, let's talk about Sean Brock and how you two have been called each other 
tons of times. That hasn't happened in years. But there was that one, that one. Um, that was like two years. Year, that was consistent. It was okay. For, it was like a good two-year period, but like the it like the the worst of it or the best of it, I suppose, was in Aspen where. Sean and I both had gotten to Aspen on Thursday for the Aspen Food and Wine Fest early in the morning. We had been texting about getting together, hadn't had time. He was doing it a bit, Bob, you know, we're both going different ways. That same day, some woman walks up to me and goes, hey, congratulations on the new place. We had just announced that we were opening up Toro, New York. So I thought that's what she meant. And I was like, oh, yeah, totally cool. Yeah. She's like, I want to talk to you and maybe like talk about, I know you've got a book coming out the book that you were just showing. Like, yeah, that's totally great. She's like, all right, I'll see you later on. I'll be, you know, around here and I'll meet, meet me at the James at like four o'clock. We can have like a drink and talk. I was like, sure, sure. So I can't remember the woman's name. Um, I also don't want to get anybody in trouble. And she and I meet and we're talking and she's asking about the book and she's asking about the new restaurant and, you know, why I thought to go where we were going. And I was like, oh, you know, just, you know, New York. And she's like, New York. I, I thought it was in Nashville. And I was like, Nashville. She's like, I, I thought it was going to be called Husk in Nashville. And I was like, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we were talking about a pop up. And then I just totally went back on it and was like, all right, stop. I'm not going to, not going to, you know, talk to her anymore. But I didn't tell her that I wasn't Sean. I finished out the interview. I even threw a couple of y'alls in and, and whatnot. Texted Sean, I just did an interview with some lady who thinks that I'm you. He goes, oh, that's funny. He texts me, I just had two people walk up and ask me where Ken was because they thought I was you. I was like, oh, that's so funny, you know? I hadn't seen him in a while. In like the six months in between the last time we had seen each other, I had lost a pretty good amount of weight. So I wasn't as much of a fat ass. And he had gotten glasses. So we were like roughly the same size we both have tattoos. He had just got his sleeve finished on his on his arm. Both wearing caps. We were both wearing hats. He, I was wearing a fucking converged like metal shirt, and he was wearing a Metallica shirt or something like that. Like most of the weekend, we basically looked like similar people with the same kind of thick glasses. I didn't think anything of it. Another person asks me if I'm Sean Brock. I'm sitting down at a table with Carmelini and um, AZ, and somebody's like, "Oh, hey, Sean." can we talk to you about something and do a photo? And I was like, yeah, sure. It was somebody from Eater. And uh, I was like, yeah, Eater National. So like we do a photo and fucking AZ leans over. He goes, you realize that they think you're Sean. And I'm like, oh yeah, I love it. I also like, don't think they would have known if I said, no, I'm Jamie Bissonnette. I don't think they would have known who I was. Like Sean was definitely like the like way, like, you know, he was like, really a big name at the time he still is but like right then he was just like exploding with newness and like everybody was talking about him so it was totally funny then second to last day we're judging koshan 555 grand koshan he and i walk into the room at the same time and we see each other same kind of shirt same jeans fucking hat on glasses i like legitimately looked at him and was like oh i get it now and we took a couple of photos so funny the John Dory, six months later, so they're like, oh, and they come over. I sit down at the bar to have some dinner. They bring over a cocktail. I mean, this was back when Sean still was drinking. They bring over a cocktail for me. Like, oh, this is what you had last time you were in. I'm like, 
hell it is like i've never had this cocktail before they thought i was sean then i see sean over at the nomad hotel one night he's having a, a pop late at night i walk in and he's like when i sat down this guy told, called me jamie told me a whole long story about how he was just at toro new york fucking so fucking funny so that fucking was funny i remember and literally the best part is is the articles came out with the wrong pictures Oh yeah, I did a photo shoot for something with AZ and they're like, oh, what's your name? I was like, I'm Sean Brock. AZ goes, huh, Phil Baltz, who was doing our PR at the time, calls me. He goes, you gotta, you've got to stop doing that. You've really got to stop doing that. <laughs> I mean, that was amazing. I mean, we all kind of pushed it. We were all having a field day with it. But that was some funny shit. It was wicked funny. Oh man, I miss that guy. Oh my God. <clears throat> so now... We're talking, you've gone through, we've done so many fun things. You've opened multiple restaurants. Now you've got a new one coming up in the works. And and you've we've all kind of dealt with this world the way it is right now, which is, to be really honest, it's been kind of broken for almost two and a half years now. And like you said, you've made some changes. You've, you're addressing things. It's dark outside now. We've been talking so long. Um, but I think... What's really exciting for me is how you're constantly progressing and pushing and evolving. And I think that to me has always been inspiring and you've always pushed me to think and you've always pushed me to be a better person. And whenever we're together, you've always pushed me to have fun, no matter how, how hard that moment may be or what's going on or how in the weeds we are, you always remind me to have fun. And I can't thank you enough for that. My pleasure, man. I just like your dimples so much that I know if you're having fun and you're smiling, you know, that's it. For <laughs> me, it's like, you know that if you if you like touch the touch the the jellyfish, it'll move and quiver. For you, it's like I know if I tickle you or make you laugh, I get to see those beautiful dimples. <laughs> so we like to play a fun game here. It's just a, a, a just a rapid fire questions and we just go. Ready? What, what do I do? You just answer them. Oh, okay. There's no, there's no, you know, there's no rules. There's no right or wrong. Just whatever. Okay. okay? I'm focused. Ready? I'm focused. Burger, hot dog. Hot dog. Ketchup, mustard. Ketchup. It's over. That was it? Ketchup. Okay. Uh, sorry. I was just shocked. You said ketchup. I thought you were saying mustard. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the point of the, the questions are yet. So I, I, they're just, they're just questions. Okay. So French, let me get fries, back French fries, onion rings, French fries, sweet potato or regular potato, regular potato. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even though sweet potatoes are fine once in a blue moon, nigiri sashimi, <clears throat> a nigiri, sea urchin caviar, sea urchin. Ravioli, dumplings. Oh man, semantics, dumpling. Not semantics, because dumpling is range. Right, but a ravioli can be looked at as a dumpling. Like when you say ravioli, are you including angolotti del plain that's more of a dumpling or is that more of a ravioli? I don't know. Like, I, 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 I mean, to me, that boils down to ravioli meaning the style of pasta compared to. Oh, okay, the, all, right, all right. Then definitely dumpling. Style of dough. Um, now you just threw me off track. Beef pork. Pork. Duck chicken. Chicken. Crab lobster. 
Crab. Blue Crab, Dungeness Crab. Dungeness. I love Dungeness Crab, right? Yeah, it's so good. It's so, so good. good right now, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. It's been so good. Oh. Light beer, dark beer. Dark beer. Red wine, white wine. Oh, white wine all day. Gruner. Gruner, Chapoli, oh Champagne. You know I miss that. I do miss, I do mm-hmm. miss our Perone moments, I got to say. Yeah, yeah. Those have been, that's actually been one of my bummers of not drinking. Yeah. For the past. Have you had the Lagunitas Hoppy Refresher? Yeah, I do. I like them. They're really good. I, I peroned that a couple of times when, on nights when I don't feel like drinking and people are all being social at the restaurants and they want me to perone with them. It's a good substitute. I got to send you this, this, um, this, this NA beer. I'll send you the NA beer cool. company. It's actually really cool. Cool. I do really, really cool stuff. I love that restaurants have been embracing the alcohol-free parts of their menus, like spirit-free cocktails. And, you know, we, you know, we get to see the demand in Cambridge a lot for people asking for non-alcoholic options and alcohol-free options and whatnot. I, I think it's a nice great. change, you know, isn't it? Also, yeah. like cooking, like when I would cook with beer, sometimes it gets bitter, right? But if you cook with the hoppy refresher, you don't have to worry about cooking off the alcohol because there's no booze in it. It's pretty neutral other than the fact that you can taste those ca- those those uh, cascade hops. So it's perfect like for like if you want to make frijoles borrachos, but you don't want to worry about it getting bitter from cooking down the ale, finish it with a little bit of that. You'll be you'll be amazed. And you can cook hot dogs in it. You can cook hot dogs in anything. You can, but I used to boil be- come on. When I was a kid, we used to have hot dogs. We used to have soggy's dogs cooked in ganny. Yeah, you gotta cook in ganny. Yeah. Because that's all it's good for. <laughs> At least it was when I was a kid. I don't know what it's like now. Oh, I think we used to use it to rinse off the lures when we were trying to put more bait on, you know? <laughs> we're going to get in trouble from the owners of Janney. <laughs> I like Gansett. We always have it. I love a Gansett tall boy from time to time. I mean, time. I grew, where I grew up in Rhode Island, the Narragansett factory was literally, when I used to go to Catholic school as a little kid, it used to be across the train tracks, right, in, in Providence, down at the base of Federal Hill. Do you still do you still crave coffee milk? Oh, always. I have Autocrat in my in the house. You have what? Autocrat coffee syrup. Yeah, I don't I don't particularly like it. I never understood it. It's good for you. I mean, come on, why not give kids reduced caffeine with extra sugar in their milk in the morning? That's gonna get you really peppy for school. Do you remember back when there weren't energy drinks and you'd get excited if you found a bodega that had jolt? Or Dr. Pepper, it used to be the other one. <laughs> I don't like that. And it's not my thing, but Jolt, yeah, I remember Jolt. Jolt, Moxie. Okay. We were New England guys. We had Moxie. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. mm-hmm. Oh, man, we're off the track here. If anybody's watching this podcast still, they're like, uh, yeah, what was what was the Cousin Tino podcast with Jamie? And I was like, uh, it was two old guys just fucking talking shit about anything that came to mind with no cohesion whatsoever. But doesn't, who cares? Like, that's what makes it funny. Yeah. So, um, risotto paella. Paella. You know I have a heated debate on that with people. Yeah, I know, but, you know, they're... They're deli- They're both delicious. I mean, I could also ask you fried rice or risotto, and it's the same question. Like, you're asking about two rice dishes that have almost no relation to each other, so whatever. It's just a preference. For me, this is just like a preference on flavor profile, right? Like, yeah, yeah. favorite candy. Candy? Yeah. Gummy bears? I'm a Swedish fish guy. Uh, oh, favorite yeah. fast food? 
<clears throat> McDonald's. Favorite guilty pleasure? Taco Bell. Chocolate or fruit? Fruit. What would your last meal be? Fuck, man. The last meal question is such a great question. I love it. But, you know, I always take the cop out normally where I say, oh, it's going to be a banquet feast where I get to have all of the fucking things and the, the this and the that. <laughs> and that's going to go with all my friends. But if we're talking about one plate of food that I'm just going to fucking hoover down and then they're going to electrocute me or whatever it is. I want fucking meatloaf and mashed potatoes with some fried oysters, fried onion rings, fried clams, and French fries. That's it. That sounds actually epic. With a side of scrambled eggs. Yeah, I could dig that. I fucking love meatloaf, mashed potatoes, man. Pancakes, waffles. Pancakes. Always, right? Yeah, I've never been a waffle guy. I love pancakes. Yeah. They're so good. It's like well, you like Johnny cakes. I do like me some Johnny cakes, man. Yeah, yeah. Good old Kenyans grits mill, man. Dude, you know I get that a... stuff shipped out here. Yeah, but you can only get it direct from them. They don't sell it to anybody else. It's pretty awesome. I know. We get. Um, I get their stuff to make clam cakes too. I make porridge out of it, so it's like almost like a polenta, like congee feel with it. It's really good. Ooh, ooh, yeah. ooh. One place in the world you haven't been, you want to go. Japan. Really? I've never been. Song and I were going to go to Korea and Japan for our honeymoon. I've been to Korea before, but I want to go to Korea with Song, meet her family that still live. Like she's got a lot of uh, aunts and uncles and grandparents, like people that live there. But uh, yeah, I've never been to Japan, man. That's awesome. Jamie, thank you. No, thank you. Do I get to ask you a bunch of questions? If you want. All right. Ready? Uh huh. Okay. You know I can't edit this. This is why I'm very nervous. Yeah, I know. This is why you should be nervous. <laughs> All right. Tapes or CDs? Ooh. Mixed tapes were the bomb because you. Oh, you totally. I got it. I got it. I got it. Oh, man. This guy's still on the edge of the song. Uh, remember doing that? <laughs> Absolutely. Tapes were the bomb. Tapes were. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. That's all I had. That's my one. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jamie, if people want to find you on, on Instagram and social media, where's the best place? Um, Jamie Best is my handle on Instagram. Yeah. And anything you want to share with the world other than make sure you order direct, go pick it up at the restaurants. <laughs> yeah. Or do whatever you want man like i don't know people can i i don't know i feel like everybody's got like a, a strong opinions on that how about just be kinder to each other let's be more patient and like if you don't believe in something that the government says do something about it that's not just complaining fucking vote get into politics if you don't like that you have to show your vax card in a city that requires it don't take it out on the restaurant people Go to, go to, you know, talk to people in the government because it's not, it's not my fucking hostess's fault. It's not my manager's fault. It's not my fault that we're asking you for it. You should also probably get vaccinated because it seems like it's probably a good idea. But, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be a ton of people that are going to unfollow me and tell me that something about government stunting something. You guys can go fuck yourselves. <laughs> I love you, Jamie. I love you too. <laughs>
just so everybody knows, if you see the two of us together, don't worry, Trouble's about three steps behind us. And on that note, we're gonna end. <laughs> see you at the next one.